Well, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Bill Bider, and uh, every once in a great while, you'll, I'm one of the elders here, but every once in a great while, uh, I will help share in the teaching duties, give Mike and Kent a break, which they uh, need for all the hard work they put in on a very regular basis, a lot less than a, a couple of the rest of us who help out at times. Uh, I'd like to open up today by reading two promises, and this is going to be a message that is a little different maybe than what you normally receive, but it's a very important one. Um, But I want to open up with two promises that God made to Abraham, and they are from Genesis 12 and 17, and I'll read those. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then from Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the ways you bless us individually and this church body and all who follow you. Pray, Lord, that uh, you will speak to us here this morning. Show us things in your word that we may not know, that we may not recognize, that we... uh, See things that help us to understand uh, how important Israel is to you and that you uh, are not finished with them. And Lord, we uh, just thank you for loving us. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we thank you for your word that just brings life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are few topics that would elicit as much emotion and uh, strong opinion as what people think about Israel and the Jewish people. World opinion, obviously, if you follow uh, the news at all, leans very negative towards Israel. In preparing, I even found several websites that were totally dedicated to reasons why people should hate the Jews or hate Israel as a nation. Now, That's not really what I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about today or these political ideas or or these kinds of opinions that you may find in the news, but it is important to give you a feel for that a little bit up front because many Christians actually interpret Scripture based upon a lot of what they hear in the news. They interpret what the meaning is when, when we see something stated about Israel these anti-Semitic type ideas. And I'm going to just give you a couple of the kinds of thoughts that are out there that sometimes uh, influence the way people think of Israel. And here are a couple. Israel is an apartheid state that commits ethnic cleansing of non-Jews. Israel has built illegal settlements in Palestinian lands and they deny Palestine's right to exist. Israel interferes in the internal affairs of other countries, especially the U.S., And Israelis think of themselves as victims, but they constantly mistreat the Palestinians. There are also, though, those who love Israel, 
and I actually would place myself self in that group, I feel some kind of connection. And maybe it's because that's what I know of the Bible and what it teaches about Israel. But others uh, have a love for Israel because they appear to be our only real true ally in the Middle East. And then you've got the politicians who say good things about Israel because they're seeking political favor, as we see right now in our elections. But um, some Christians have also insightfully observed that the hate for Israel could be deep-rooted hate for God and his word. You know, his word says that Israel was a chosen people on the apple of his eye. And there's nothing quite so upsetting in the world in which we live today as to think God may actually have chosen a people to carry out his purpose. That's not politically correct to think that God may have a chosen people. But again, as I say, my goal today is not to talk about these kinds of things, this uh, non-biblical side of the hatred for Israel, but it's really uh, to address this question, this debate within the church of whether God is finished with Israel or not, because there is a debate within the church. And then you may ask, well, why is this important? The lion and lamb statement of belief doesn't really address this topic. And it's not necessary to believe that God has a plan for Israel to be saved. That's not one of those things that if you say, well, I'm not really sure that that God has a plan for Israel, that doesn't mean that you're unable to be saved. But it is important. And and I'll throw a little interjection in here. I had a dream last night. (laughs) Sorry to, to deviate, but I'm about to start trying to use this. I had a dream that I just had a terrible time with my presentation. I don't know if, Mike, if you've ever had that dream, but uh, I'm about to start, so if it doesn't work, my dream is coming true, and that's not, that's not what I'm hoping is going to happen, okay? And it didn't work. <laughs> is this on? Let's see. Now, it's the arrows, right, Eric? Oh. See, I knew it. I knew it was going to happen, but um, see if you can make it happen. I can use, if it doesn't, I can use the computer. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. Um, as I said, why, are, why is this important? Well, there's at least two good reasons, and that's all I'll focus on today. One is that promise of Genesis 12 remains true for us today. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. I don't believe that that promise has disappeared. And second, a proper view of God's eternal plan for Israel is necessary for us to understand Bible prophecy. If we don't have that view of Israel that there is still, they still are part of God's plan. We're going to get much of Bible prophecy wrong if we don't see how they fit into it. So there are two good reasons. Uh, Now, even for those who do believe that God is not finished with Israel, there's debates about exact details. It's complex. It's impossible for me to cover this adequately in one message. So I'm going to have to really 
focus on a few key points. But first, I'm going to say that my position and I, is that God is not finished with Israel. That there are unconditional promises that are yet to be fulfilled. And we'll see what some of those are today. Alternatively, there is a group within the church that feels that all of God's promises to Israel have been transferred to the church. And there are different names that are given to this idea or this way of thinking, and you see three of them up there. I'm not sure if there are really any others that are significant, but replacement theology is the main one, and that's the way I'm going to be referring it to it this morning. Supersessionism is a word, which it's a hard, hard, big word, not used as much, and fulfillment theology. And really what it means is if you're going to adhere to this, that God is finished with the nation of Israel from an ethnic point of view, you're going to believe that all of these promises that we see in Scripture that refer apparently, literally, to Israel, the nation actually refer to uh, the church. So, um, and that's the universal church, those who believe in Christ. Now, I'm going to have to focus, as I said, and so... These are the three main points. You saw one of them up there already, that God's word is clear. He is not finished with ethnic Israel. That's one thing I'm going to try to show. I'm going to try to show that God will bring spiritual revival to Israel and that Israel will be restored to the promised land. That's the three main points. Now, throughout this message, I'm going to interchangeably be using the term Israel, ethnic Jews, the Jewish people, You'll hear me say those uh, all, and whenever I say these, what I really am referring to are the biological descendants of Jacob, who make up the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the same people that when Moses, uh, written about or referred to by Moses in Deuteronomy 7, where he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So uh, whenever I refer to any of those, I'm referring to these biological descendants. Now, to have an idea of where the Jews live today in the world, I thought I'd try to find a slide to give us an, an idea of that. And you can see that the United States, that one big bubble, has over 5 million, and Israel has over 5 million. So almost the same number of Jews live in the U.S. as in Israel, and then they're scattered around the world. Now, I don't know whether this means those biological descendants or those who could have converted to Judaism, but anyway, it gives us an idea of where the Jews are. And if we would go pre-World War II, before the Holocaust, we would have had even a larger circle in Eastern Europe, but that disappeared in the Holocaust. But this is the way it looks today. Now, I'm going to shift gears a bit here from just this background that I've been talking about because within the church, there is this uh, very sincere idea of replacement theology. And I have two key passages up there that are primarily used by those who adhere to, to replacement theology to support their position. 
This is part of the verses. I've got a little more thorough on my page that I'm going to read to you. First from Romans 2. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. And then from Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now taken alone, these verses do seem to say there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, including who are actually going to be the recipients or heirs to God's promises. These verses have served as the basis for building the replacement theology position. There are other verses as well, but these are probably as two most important. Now, who wrote these verses? Paul. Paul was the author of both of these letters, Romans and Galatians. And a little later, we're going to come back to some writings of Paul that clearly show that he believed that God did have a future plan for Israel. So unless Paul wrote contradicting passages, in fact, in the same book, Romans, while under the influence of the Holy Spirit, then we have to believe that using these verses to support replacement theology must be wrong. And I'll come back to that towards the end. Now, a little more background about this anti-Semitic trend that began really shortly after the time that Jesus walked the earth. Uh, it began with the early church fathers, and I've got a few of those listed on your handout as well as here um, on the slide. The early church fathers have uh, been very important and from a doctrine point of view and foundation ideas within the church. But from 100 to 450 A.D., these men said some very terrible things about the Jewish people. And I want to read just a few of those, a little more detail than was on the slide. Origen, he was an early Christian theologian from Alexandria, Egypt. And he said, the blood of Jesus falls not only on the Jews at that time, but on all generations of Jews up to the end of the world. Jerome was a priest and theologian who translated the Bible into Latin, called the Vulgate. And he wrote, Jews are serpents, wearing the image of Judas. Their psalms and prayers are the braying of donkeys. Ambrose, bishop of Milan, wrote, The Jews are the most worthless of men. They are lecherous, greedy, and the murderers of Christ. They worship the devil and for killing God. No atonement, no indulgence, and no pardon is possible. And then finally we come to Augustine, who is probably the most notable theologian towards the end of that period of the early church fathers who firmly believed that the Christian church comprised the new Israel. And he believed that the Jewish people would continue to exist but always be persecuted because that was part of God's plan. And he taught that the Jews could not believe in the Messiah who they had murdered. And he wrote this, that the Jews deserve death but are destined to wander the earth to witness the victory of the church over the synagogue. That's just some of what they wrote. There's a whole lot more if you would study it. Now, 
there, this didn't end with the church fathers. The Roman Catholic Church consistently followed that pattern of criticism and mistreatment of ethnic Israel. Uh, even though some popes were sympathetic to the plight of the Jews, it, it was, uh, there was this undercurrent throughout the church of the Catholic Church during that time. And I'm just going to tell you a quick couple quotes from a couple popes. One in the 1200s, Pope Gregory IX. No punishment would be sufficiently great or sufficiently worthy of their crime, meaning the murder of Jesus, which was being placed on the head of not only the Jews at the time of Jesus, but on the Jews throughout all time that would follow. And then 300 years later, Pope Paul IV issued a decree that required the Jews to live in ghettos. That sounds familiar to what happened in time of Germany where he stated that the Jews' own guilt has consigned them to perpetual slavery. Now, this didn't, it isn't just the Catholic Church. The main reformers that we have, uh, and shown up there, we show Calvin and Luther. Martin Luther, towards the end of his life, got increasingly bitter towards the Jews, that he actually advocated setting synagogues on fire, destroying their prayer books, seizing their property, smashing their homes. He called them blasphemers and envenomed worms that should be put into forced labor and expelled from Germany for all time. We can see how Luther's writings may have influenced some of what did come at the time of the Holocaust. Now, John Calvin was not nearly as anti-Semitic as Luther, and some of his writings actually showed a kind of love for the Jews but he was quoted at, in some of his writings as still calling them rotten people, and they had unbending stiff-neckedness, and that their misery was deserved. Now, it didn't even end back in those days. Today, you will hear people, teachers today, who are opposed to uh, the fact that Israel may still be part of God's plan, and probably one of the more famous ones that we may listen to, a lot of us. Uh, the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff, is one of those people who uh, believes there is no future for Israel. And today what we t- tend to find is Bible teachers who do not believe in a literal seven-year tribulation, a literal antichrist, a literal millennial kingdom. They also teach replacement theology to a large extent. I don't want to say that's broad brush, paint them all that way. But that's what we would see a lot today. We don't hear those same kind of bitter criticism comments that we saw that I was reading from some of those earlier people, but we, we do, there is some of it, but not so much within uh, the church. Now, I'm going to shift a bit here to, uh, I'd like to use a bit of logical reasoning to show that there's a form of hypocrisy within replacement theology, and it comes down to related to the concept of grace. We're familiar with this uh, verse uh, or verses from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Most proponents of replacement theology readily accept the fact that their own salvation is based on God's grace. They know they've been saved from the consequences of their sin and an eternity in hell because they, that God mercifully and gracefully bestowed upon them the gift of faith, as talked about in this passage. They believe this passage applies to them. Similarly, we see in Hebrews 
12 that God is the author of our faith. So it starts with God. And despite recognizing that their faith didn't have its origin in themselves, they appear to refuse to accept the idea that God in his timing might similarly, similarly shed his grace upon the Jewish nation. We Gentiles, like the majority of present-day ethnic, uh, present ethnic Jews, were once enemies of God, but he brought us into the family in his perfect timing when he transferred us from that dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. And he can do the same for the Jews when his timing is right. Now we see this uh, a coming spiritual awakening of the Jewish people prophesied in both the Old and the New Testaments, and we see that it is clearly going to be an act of God that makes, brings about this change. So let's take a look at a couple of those passages. We're going to look at Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah 31, talking of this spiritual awakening. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. Clearly, he's talking about the ethnic Jews. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Well, there's only one new covenant. We talk about it. Maybe Mike's going to talk about it in the Lord's Supper today. It's no longer a covenant that's based upon the shedding of blood of animals, bulls, goats, lambs. It's about the shedding of Jesus' own blood that he willingly did. That's the new covenant. That's the new covenant that Jeremiah is talking about. That new covenant is the same new covenant that is applicable to both Jewish and Gentile believers. Let's look at Ezekiel's. Chapter 36, explanation. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will clean you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a clean heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, from you, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you. There is new, no doubt that that is talking about new spiritual life coming into the Jewish people. Now let's take a quick look at just the next chapter of Ezekiel, because this one you're probably familiar with, but it is a relevant follow-up to this valley of dry bones. And in Ezekiel 37, just part of reading that, then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. And it symbolizes their spiritual deadness. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. David, my servant, will be their prince forever and I will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant. Well, what sticks out in all three of these passages, the two from Ezekiel and Jeremiah? Well, it seems that what sticks out is that it's what God will do. It's what he says he will do for the Jewish people, despite their stubborn unbelief. 
It expresses a time that God is going to pour out his grace upon Israel. It is a coming time. It is the coming time of new birth. So what's God waiting for? Why is he waiting? Well, Paul helps us understand the delay some in Romans chapter 11, where he clearly is talking about ethnic Israel. In Romans 11, 11, Paul asks, Did they, meaning Israel, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel emphasis, envious. And then moving on a little bit further in chapter 11, and I strongly recommend that you thoroughly read Romans chapter 9 through 11 to get a better idea of what Paul is teaching about the future of Israel. Don't have time for all that today, but I rec- strongly recommend the study of those chapters to, to learn more about this. But moving on to verses 25 and 26, he's warning Gentile believers in Rome, I do not want you to be ignorant or conceited, that is, regarding the faith that they already have, as compared to the unbelieving Jews. For Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel would be saved. Remember, this is the same Paul who wrote in earlier in Romans and in Galatians, and that people in replacement theology used to say that Paul believed that there was no future for Israel. Now... Um, All of Scripture, I think from all of Scripture, we see that the Jews will be saved in the same way that Gentiles are saved, and that is by faith. At the end of this age in which we live right now, the ethnic Jews will be saved because they accept God's graceful gift of faith, and they place their trust in Jesus as Savior. They, along with all Gentile believers, are going to belong to Christ at that time and comprise the spiritual children of Abraham, or the seed that Paul actually spoke of in Galatians 3. All will be part of the new covenant under which they're saved because of the blood of Jesus. Now, the Jews are going to remain a distinct people and a stubborn people all the way up until this Time near the end, when Christ's return draws near. And when that happens, uh, that, that's when God will act and those spiritual dead, dry bones will come to life. Now I want to mention one of those other promises too. That's the spiritual awakening. We've also got the land promise that I wanted to say a little bit about today. The map you see up there is the best estimates of uh, where that land, promised land, is described as, and that's in Genesis 15. There's many places in the Old Testament that describe the land promise, and I'm going to just read two verses. Amos 9.15 says, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. And then in Ezekiel 37 that same chapter we were looking at earlier about the dry bones, I will take the Israelites out of the nations and bring them back into their own land. They will live in the land I gave to to my servant Jacob. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, 
It will be an everlasting covenant. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. Now, this passage also talks about the, uh, the son of David being the ruler at that time, reigning at that time. But if, it's interesting that the Ezekiel passage in 37 sounds very much like Revelation 21.3 that says God's dwelling place will be among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and be their God. And this is a forever thing. We see other glimpses of Israel in the book of Revelation shortly before and even after the time of Jesus' return. Revelation 7 says that then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And John then goes on to list those 12 tribes, confirming that we really are talking, when we talk the 144,000, we are talking ethnic Jews because they are linked to those tribes. These are the Jews that will be sealed with the Holy Spirit and protected during the tribulation period, and they're going to be instrumental in bringing others to faith during that time period. And they're the same people that are going to meet Jesus at Mount Zion when he returns. And Revelation 14 says that. It says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Well, God has preserved Israel and protected them through things that uh, are just miraculous. It's Satan's hatred and everyone who Satan has used have tried to persecute and destroy Israel, and yet God has preserved them. He still has a plan for them. That plan will materialize during those final seven years. And in spite of their unbelief, God has used them and has blessed the nations through them. He brought his law and his commandments through them, and Jesus was born into that nation. So nothing has, nothing can thwart the purposes of God. And it's my position that there's many unconditional promises in his word yet to be fulfilled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, not only to us individually. We thank you for your faithful promises to, to Israel to, to use them in your perfect timing. And we don't fully understand every little detail, Lord, but we, we do trust that they are a nation that uh, we should love, that we should bless, And just ask us, Lord, to fully be what it is that you want us to be regarding them, whether it's this present gathering in Israel, the nation that will be the final gathering, or if it's sometime distant future, we don't know, but it could be. So help us to be the right people to accomplish your purposes during this time that we live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.